We're looking at Ecclesiastes 5. If you're wondering how you can find Ecclesiastes in the Bible, maybe you don't go there very often, you simply open your Bible to the middle point. Most likely, you will arrive at the book of Psalms. If you hit Proverbs, even better, because now you're just one book away. So you get Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Warning signs serve to notify us that we are headed towards danger. Think of the various warning signs that you've seen, high voltage, or even warning signs with symbols, uh, skull and a crossbones, uh, radioactive symbol. When you see these signs, they don't require further explanation. You get what they're saying. It's very clear. I read a story of a young woman who lost her life because she had disregarded the clear warning signs. She was heading out on a trip of a lifetime. She had always wanted to photograph the king of the jungle, and so she goes to a safari. And the sign was very clear. Do not roll down your window. You got it? Understandable? Or as my friend's dad used to say growing up, capiche? You see, this young woman, she saw the clear warning signs, and I get the temptation. I get the desire to be up close and personal with nature. Isn't nature incredible? All of the, the variety and diversity that God has created. But I will say this. I am a, a zoo aficionado. I love going to the zoo. But I love the barriers even more they put between me and the lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Because when that barrier is gone, we have significant problems on our hands. This is an animal that could end my life in a matter of seconds. I want you to think about a word, irreverence. To be irreverent means to show a lack of respect for people or things that are generally to be taken seriously. So you're in the presence of a lion and there's no barrier. Now, a couple of things should happen. One, your pulse should quicken. Two, your breath should shorten. And three, you should not lose eye contact with that animal. You certainly wouldn't want to trivialize it. You wouldn't want to treat it like Mrs. Fufu, the house cat. Well, this young woman rolled down the vehicle's window. She wanted to get the best picture possible, and tragedy ensued. As we pick up the text this morning in Ecclesiastes 5, I've been praying over this message, and I remember preaching this passage five years ago, and this is one of those texts that, if you will allow it, will stick with you for a lifetime. It will reorient how you understand God and how you think of God, and, and rightfully so. Solomon's going to tell us this morning that God is awesome. You think of a lion being powerful. Well, let me tell you, God is all-powerful. And as Solomon writes this book, 
he is really arguing from an apologetics standpoint. I believe that he has great intentionalities, not bemoaning his life in Ecclesiastes. I believe he's writing to the people and the culture around him. And he has two worldviews that you can live by. One worldview is you can live life under the sun, and that's to live like God doesn't exist. And plenty of people do that. Or... His bottom line is Ecclesiastes 12.3. This is the end of the matter. Fear God, obey his commandments. If you would really understand who this God is, if you would really come to grips with the reality of his power and his might and his awesomeness, Solomon says that will change your life completely. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And he's going to have some advice for us as we approach this God. Let's look at verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Solomon says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now let's begin with where he begins, guard your steps. As I think of that advice that Solomon's giving us, I, I come to the realization that there may be various reasons why some of you are here this morning, and I can think along a broad spectrum of reasons. Some of us come because we desire significance. There's something missing, and we've heard along the way that if we would incorporate God into our lives somehow, we might find meaning, we might find purpose, we might find significance. Others come because there is a sense of loss in your life, and you're hoping that God can fill the void of whatever it is, a sadness, a loneliness, an anxiety. Some come for the people, the relationships the connections. Others are interested in the mission. You, you understand that there's a greater purpose in this life that you can do things for God, for the kingdom of God. But what I want to tell you this morning is that there should be one ultimate defining reason why we come to church on a Sunday morning. And that is to have an encounter with God Almighty. You see, what we're talking about here is worship. That's what it is. It's not the music that we sing. It's not even the time together from 8.30 till whenever or 10.30 till whenever. Worship is really why you were created. A.W. Tozer wrote a beautiful little book, Worship the Missing Jewel, 
And in the book, he said, the purpose of God in sending his son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that he might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place, to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And Solomon is saying is you engage in that activity of worship to guard your steps. Now, I hear a statement like that, and I think to myself, isn't that just a touch harsh? I mean, I think church is being an approachable place. I think of God as being someone that I can come to with any of my issues at any time. And I don't think that Solomon is saying that you shouldn't think of God in those terms. But he is telling us that we should certainly consider who it is that we're approaching. I love how R.C. Sproul describes God in this paragraph. He says, the God we worship is the God who has always been. He alone can create beings because he alone possesses the power of being. He is pure being. The one who has the power to be all by himself. He alone is eternal. He alone has power over death. He alone can call worlds into being by fiat, which means nothing. Have you ever tried to think about nothing? It's actually quite hard to do, even when your child tells you that that's what they did at school all day. (laughs) R.C. Sproul continues, and he says, Such power is staggering, awesome, deserving of respect, of humble adoration. That's why the Bible speaks of the characteristic of holiness so much when talking and referring to God. You know, holiness in the Bible refers to or calls attention to all that God is. In Isaiah 6, 3, when the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're calling attention to all that he is. And in that Hebrew language, to repeat a word three times means to elevate it to ultimate significance. So in the Bible, we read that God is thrice holy. We never read of any of the other attributes of God as being thrice love, 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 or thrice grace, 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 or thrice mercy, mercy, mercy. It's only ever holy, holy, holy. What is the Bible telling us about him? He's distinct. He's other. He's lofty. He is greater than me. He's bigger than me. As I think about the holiness of God, I'm reminded of this interaction in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love this interaction that C.S. Lewis sets up. They're talking about the lion Aslan. And if you know the book, you know that Aslan is a type of Christ in the story. Now, Mr. Beaver is describing him And he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan says, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. I love that interaction because as you think about Aslan being a type of Christ, of course God isn't safe. He's distinct. He's other. When we think of safe, we think about something that we can confine, we can predict. You can't predict God. But the Bible does tell us that he is good. So you can trust him. When you come into worship, you are coming before a holy God. Now, we tend to think to ourselves, well, as long as I'm coming to worship, God says, thank you for that. As long as I come to him in worship, well, then I can just worship however I want. But Solomon is saying otherwise. He's saying, look, I have four pieces of advice for you as you approach this lion. The first piece is to draw near to listen. Look again at verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now Solomon is talking about this. I'm reminded of the reality that there is nothing worse than the going through the motions kind of worship. That is what he is saying is the sacrifice of fools, the offering of fools. It has all the appeal of moldy bread. It's as uh, riveting as listening to Ben Stein read the A section of the alphabet in the encyclopedia. You would just love to do that, wouldn't you? You'd want to spend hours with it. You know what God says when we come to church and we just show up just to sit, just to listen, just to go about our day and do our own thing from there? You know what he says? Gag. Gag. And I think that's why people come into church sometimes and they say there's nothing going on here because in reality there's nothing going on here because God doesn't even want to worship in a place like that. And that should terrify us. Why would we want to come into church without God's presence? I'll tell you this, church, there is nothing boring about real worship. Do you think that Isaiah was bored in Isaiah chapter 6 when he met the living God, fell to his face, the angels crying, holy, holy, holy? Do you think that he was bored? Or what about the disciples as they're launching across the Sea of Galilee and Jesus stands up and he commands the wind and the waves to cease? Do you think they were bored? A.W. Tozer says this, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. I wonder if we would be less bored if we took Solomon's advice seriously. Draw near to listen. To listen means to obey the word of God. To listen means that I I don't walk into church as the Bible's being opened and, and say to myself, well, if the preacher doesn't talk about current agenda item, then they haven't done their job. 
To listen means that I come into the space of worship and I say, God, I need to hear a word from you, a word that may be outside of anything I want to hear this morning, but I know that I need to hear from you. I love what Henry David Thoreau said. He said this, it takes two to speak the truth, one to speak and the other to listen. As you think about the relationship, who needs to do the speaking and who needs to do the listening? Solomon says, of course, we need to draw close to listen. If you're coming to church on Sunday morning with your hair on fire, you know, you just barely got your act together, you barely got into the car, you barely made it into the sanctuary, do you think you're in the state of mind or attitude of heart to listen? I don't know. I don't think so. I think listening requires preparation. I think listening requires prayer. I think listening requires us to say, God, I am under your word. I'm here to receive it. Listen to this next piece of advice. Let your words be few. Verses 2 and 3 again. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Now, Solomon is saying that there is a danger in speech. We should take words seriously. I'm reminded of that expression, familiarity breeds contempt. I, I think of the young child that uses too much tone with their parents or the teenager who calls mom and dad by their first name. Let me just be clear on this. That ought not to be. And, and the reason they do that, of course, is because there is a familiarity with the relationship. They feel comfortable. And Solomon is saying that you can bring that same sort of familiarity into your prayer life with God. You can speak to him in ways that you should not speak to him. He's not our homeboy. He's not the big guy upstairs. God is not a person that I vent to because he has big enough shoulders to handle it. No, if anything, Solomon says in that proverb in verse 3, that's how fools talk to God. Again, we come back to the idea of reverence. I'm reminded of the story of Job. Do you remember how Job went through a, a series of suffering? And, and he said to his friends, all of these things have happened to me, and I just want an audience with God, and I want God to answer me, why did these things happen to me? I love how God responds to Job in that story. He comes to Job, and, and you get the sense that God, of course, is willing to listen to you as you suffer, as you go through hard things. He's near, he's close, but he refuses to ever stand trial. He comes at Job after all of these chapters of Job asking questions. He doesn't answer a single one of Job's questions. He starts asking him questions, in fact, 70 of them. Questions like this, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who set the boundaries of the sea? Do you control the sun's rising and falling? It makes me think of God just sitting there and saying, yeah, you know, do you remember the job description? I'm God, you're not. I'm in control here. I've got this. 
I say similar things to my children. You know, I'm the one paying the bills. When you get your license, then you can decide where we drive. But for now, I'm going to decide how things happen. Isaiah 55, right? My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. I mean, if I was to stand in the presence of Elon Musk, I would feel inferior in intellect. But imagine standing in God's presence. And my ways, he says, are far beyond anything you could imagine. We can't even get in the realm of where God's mind is. He is so far beyond us, so grander than we are. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Can you come to God with your big questions, your big concerns? Absolutely. If you ever question that in your heart, you read the book of Psalms. Those are the prayers of the believers. There they bring the biggest questions imaginable to God. God, I'm suffering. God, why is this happening? Why do the evil prosper? But what they teach us to do in the space of prayer in the Psalter is to come to him with reverence as we ask those questions. And as you come to him like that, then he's the God of Psalm 23 to you. The Lord is my shepherd. And he walks you through tragedy, he walks you through suffering, he walks you through joy. Solomon continues, he says, pay what you vow, verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you into not let not your mouth lead you into sin and and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake why should god be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands so i read those verses i'm reminded that in our culture right now promises and vows are more of a casual hope for us whether it's to commit your time for an hour for a friend that's moving their stuff or something as significant as the marriage vow, we treat vows today like virtual reality. I think of a book that I read, I Told Me So. And the author in the book said that we deceive ourselves, and one of the ways we deceive ourselves is actually through the act of procrastination. Now, procrastination, of course, we've all done it, just be honest with yourself, I've done it a lot. We say we're going to do something, we defer doing something, and then we never do something. Do you think that that can infiltrate the space of worship? Oh, you better believe it can. This same author said that one Sunday he was in church and he felt that God had put it on his heart that he should give financially to a missions effort that the church was involving itself in. He said, right then and there, I'm writing a check, I'm committing to this, God, I will do this. And then he took that commitment card, he tucked it in his Bible, he went home, and he intended to pay it that evening. A year later, he opens his Bible to the same passage that they were preaching that Sunday morning, and there was the blank commitment card. Now, 
Solomon says, don't be casual like that with your words. God takes those things very seriously. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if that's the case, then I'm just not going to commit to anything. (laughs) Because that's safe, right? I mean, if I'm never in the presence of the lion, then I don't have to worry about anything. I can just kind of do what I want to do, and I'll be all set. Here's the thing. Vows and commitments are the seedbeds for life-altering actions. Solomon's not saying do not commit yourself to anything. He's saying don't treat commitments as something casual. I think of the story of Ruth. You know her story. Ruth, her sister-in-law, Orpah, and Naomi, they're left destitute because their husbands have died in the middle of a famine. In this day and age, that is pretty much a death sentence. Now, Naomi is trying to do something altruistic for her daughters-in-law. She tells them, I released you of the commitment to be with me. Go back to your families. They will provide for you. You will be all set. The two girls have two different responses to that direction. The Bible says Orpah kissed her and then basically left and did just that. She went home. She was provided for from her father. But Ruth clung to her. Listen to this vow, this commitment that Ruth makes to her mother-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. Now, this is a beautiful vow, but it's also the seedbed for all kinds of life-altering changes in the life of Naomi and Ruth. For one thing, it's the seedbed for provision for these two women. They go to Bethlehem, the town of bread, and the harvest is on, and they find provision there. It's also the seedbed for Ruth to meet another husband. His name is Boaz, which in the Hebrew means boss. And then there's the seedbed for in their marriage. You guys didn't get that, did you? His name does not mean boss. They're like, yeah, that must be the Hebrew. (laughs) It's not the Hebrew. Okay. Anyway, let's let's get back on course. I was just like, everyone's just drinking it in. (laughs) I'm like, I better correct this. That is error. <laughs> it's also the seedbed for a child named Obed. Now listen to this. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse's the father of who? David. And David is the distant grandfather of Jesus. Now just imagine if Ruth comes to the scene again and she says, you know, Naomi... I really don't commit to things. What would have happened? I don't want to think about it. You want a transformative life. A transformative life comes through making transformative commitments and doing transformative follow-through upon those commitments. Commit to things, only don't do so casually. Take it seriously, consider it, weigh it, and then involve yourself in it. 
We come to the final piece of advice, fear the Lord, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 5.7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Several years ago, as I was studying the fear of the Lord, I read an article titled, Trading Fear for Fear. And in it, they were talking about the reality that we live in a day and age where there is a lot of fear-mongering. In fact, I think many of you are probably suffering from fear fatigue right now. We hear so many fearful things that we have a hard time processing it all. I mean, listen to the news tonight and tell me if you don't hear something fearful. Talk to a friend that's listening to the news tonight and tell me that you don't hear something fearful. When the Bible talks about fear, it talks about it in two ways. There is one, the fear of God, and then there is the fear of everything else. That's how you can break it down. The author suggests that the second kind of fear uh, that the Bible speaks of is a desire to control our world. And think about all the things we fear. I, I fear losing a job or income or family or reputation or health or our lives. That's all stemming from the desire to control the world around me. And that type of fear pulls you away from God. Either you begin to believe that he's not capable enough to handle it, or that he doesn't know, or he doesn't care. Either way you divide that, it pulls you away from him. But there's a good kind of fear. A fear that the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And the Bible says this fear brings wisdom and joy and rest in life. It's a holy fear. Listen to Proverbs 19.23. Fear of the Lord leads to life bringing security and protection from harm. Or Psalm 112.1, Praise the Lord, how joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying His commands. Which fear is controlling your life right now? R.C. Sproul, the first time he was ever in a class where they unpacked the holiness of God, was left awestruck by it. That night, he had this prayerful encounter with the Lord, and I want to read it to you. He said, I was in the posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was telltale, thump, thump, against my chest. An icy chill start, started at the base of my spine and, and crept up my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. The terror passed, but soon it was followed by another wave. This wave was different. It flooded my soul with unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. At once, I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life-transforming. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and peace in the next. 
I knew in that hour that I had tasted of the holy grail, and within me was born a new thirst that could never be fully satisfied in this world. Let me ask you, have you had an encounter with God like that? As you look at that mission statement over there, we have three words that describe our mission at this church. Worship, transformation, mission. That statement always begins with worship. Worship is ultimate. Transformation and mission are penultimate. They're secondary. Worship comes first. Why? Because if I don't know who this God is that I am serving, that I'm doing things for, then I go nowhere. I get nothing from the relationship. Worship is all that I am responding to all that He is. Do you want a Christian life that is energized and motivated? What well, comes from loving Him and knowing who He is and even, yes, fearing Him. Have you met God in that way? I'll tell you, it will change your life forever. Let's pray. Lord, holy, holy, holy are you. This morning as we come into this space of worship, we are reminded of your vastness, your grandeur. But at the same time, we're also reminded that you are the God who came near to us in the person of Jesus. I love that about who you are. You are almighty God, but you are also Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for having this beautiful plan to create us, to call us together here in Christ, and to call us to be on mission for you. I pray that today, Lord, we would have an even stronger sense of your holiness, of your greatness, of your power, your sovereignty. And Lord, as that reality dawns upon our hearts, that we would find the peace that surpasses understanding, knowing that you are for us. I pray over each one here this morning, I pray that we've each had an encounter with you, a life-changing encounter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.